Hey, this is Kenny Aronoff, right here from my studio in Los Angeles, Uncommon Studios LA, and you're listening to me on Talking Blues. So you just had a gig with the Kings of Chaos. Well, I had a gig with Kings of Chaos, the Bodines, and John Fogarty. Wow. And, and I did a, uh, a speaking event, my first uh, in-person corporate speaking event, and all this happened all within like three weeks. So it's been, it's nonstop. And the preparation for every one of these things is massive for me. I'm a very, very anal hard worker, you know, that crosses the T's, dots the I's. It doesn't matter that I played with John Fogarty for 27 years. To prepare for one show takes three, four days. Is that a, what, what is the preparation? Is it a... The musical preparation? Is it a physical preparation? Is it a mental preparation? Is it all of the above? It's all of the above. But the most important thing is that we're human beings. We're not robots. You know, you I may have played Fortunate Son, you know, 8,000 times, but that doesn't mean you can play it after you haven't played with uh, John Fogarty for 13 months, that you can just get back into it. So it's the repetition. It's the It's going over everything, physical, mental, and emotional uh, and technical that you need to do to play at the level that I'm expected to play at. And it's just simply repetition. I have this thing called RPS, which is the repetition of any skill is the preparation for success. That's why Tom Brady has won seven Super Bowls. Tom Brady is always thinking about winning a game uh, mentally, physically, emotionally, spiritually, 24 hours a day, 365 days a year. It's a lifestyle. So when I prepare, yes, I pull the music out. I have technique exercises I do anyway every day. But then I even will practice the count off if I have to count off. I go through every single thing so that when I get to the situation, not only do I feel confident, but people can feel it and smell it. It inspires the rest of the people around me. When do you know that when you feel confident? Well, I'm pretty confident 24 hours a day <laughs> at this point. But I, but my, the, where does where does that come from? Well, I mean, I was, you know, when I was 18, the day I graduated high school, I started practicing eight hours a day, seven days a week, because I was going to. There was no school of rock when I was a kid, so I was going to study classical music. In my family, we all went to college, so there were only programs that were around in the USA were. If probably the world, because rock and roll was so new, it was either be a jazz major or a classical major. I chose classical because I had started studying with the percussionists from the Boston Symphony Orchestra. And, uh, you know, that, that type of instruction was, there's no entitlement, there's no laziness, there's no hand-holding, there's no trophies just because you show up. If you aren't prepared, you get your ass kicked. And that's what I learned from that type of teacher and also I was like on I was a three letterman jock by the time I was a 16 years old I was on three varsity sports in high school so my 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 uh, my skills of understanding discipline self-discipline hard work and perseverance and no hand-holding and just you're on your own and it's you want it you go after it if you don't want it then somebody's going to take your place that those skills I learned by the time I was 18 and so I didn't need someone to tell me to practice eight hours a day. I did it because I knew I was behind. And I, the thought of failure was just unacceptable for me. And I'm still that guy. It's like, you know, to be successful is one thing. To stay successful is much, much harder. And uh, for me, I'm not like, I'm talented, but I mean, I could name off 100, 500 great drummers that are, that are amazing. But I'm just trying to be the best that I am. I'm trying to be the best Kenny Aronoff I can be in this life. And it's, uh, you know, and so I'm, I'm really competing with myself. And uh, because I'm human, you know, it's like you're just not going to be always where you want to be. I have a saying. It's called, I'll never be as great as I want to be, but I'm willing to spend the rest of my life trying to be as great as I can be. And that's like a running back in football. They don't get touchdowns every time. The most massive, most physical, most, you know, rehearsed and prepared athletes. But they don't get touchdowns every time. 
They stay focused on their entire career to get in the end zone. It's a mental thing. And that's that's the way I look at myself. Is if things don't necessarily come as fast as you want, if you really want it, you stay on it. And I understand the method now. I understand. Just hang in there and keep putting in the time. Keep working. Keep doing it. If you have a bad show, there's a reason. You just calmly figure out what you need to do you know, to make the next show better. And it's, it's that simple. There's no shortcuts. No shortcuts. At what point did you know that this is what you wanted to do? Age 10, I saw the Beatles on TV. I was playing outside, and there was nothing to watch on TV when I was a kid. So we were always playing outside, and my mom yelled at us to come into the family room. We thought we were in trouble. And when I got there, she was pointing to a black-and-white RCA TV set, you know, with the rabbit ears to get... It was the antenna right. to get reception. And there's four guys on TV and they're in suits and they look cool as hell. And they got guitars and bass. And uh, there's, you know, Ringo Starr was on the drum set way up on a high riser and they had long hair and they looked cool. And they broke into um, She Loves You, Yeah, Yeah, Yeah on the Ed Sullivan show. And when I saw it, I was like, oh my God, I want to do this. I don't know who these guys are, I don't know where they're from. I'd heard rock and roll, but I'd never seen it. And I'm like, it was at that very second, I knew that I wanted to be part of a group of people, a team of musicians that would do that, you know, that would record music, perform music, collaboration, you know, uh, creativity. Uh, I didn't know these words. And I definitely, I think at that moment, I realized what my purpose in life was, what my bliss was, what my passion, what my deepest desires were, what my truth was, before I even knew what those words meant. But it hit me deep in my heart. And I asked my mom, who are these guys? And she said, they're the Beatles. And I went, well, I want to be in the Beatles. So call them up. And I want a drum set. <laughs> Fuck the piano lessons. I'm playing drums now. Well, she didn't get me a drum set, and she didn't call up the Beatles, obviously. So I... um I was very bummed out. I was like, I don't know what to do. There was nobody to tell me. There was nobody teaching rock and roll. How does a 10-year-old kid really get, get his dream to come true? So my parents saw that I was really, really crazy about you know rock and roll. So they got me a snare drum and a cymbal. And I started my own band called the Alley Cats. And we learned how to, we taught ourselves how to play our instruments. And we started playing Beatles music. But the the, 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 the great ending of, of this story or the or a great milestone on this story is 50 years later when I was an established session touring drummer I get a call from uh, uh, Don was producer musical director to do a CBS special called the night that changed America honoring the Beatles for that 50 that that Ed Sullivan show 50 years later now I get to be part of that not only am I the drummer in the house band but two of the musicians I played with was Ringo Starr and Paul McCartney. So it's kind of like a Cinderella story, dreams come true kind of thing. But what happened in between, I made it happen. And many decisions I made were based on that original realizing your purpose. For example, so I mean, all through high school, all through grade school, from 10 years old playing with the Alley Cats until I graduated high school, I played in bands. You know, we had a barn on our property. We just played in bands. And what else? I didn't know what else to do. You know, I was in a town of 3,000 people. So when it was time to go to college, I got into an okay college but for one year. But then I transferred to the number one school of music for classical music, Indiana University School of Music in Bloomington, Indiana. Spent four years there. Auditioned, got into the Aspen School of Music for a summer program by, by Juilliard which is the number two school in the country. And I spent four consecutive years auditioning for the a summer program at Tanglewood run by the Boston Symphony Orchestra. And I failed three times. And I went back a fourth time and I got in. Seven percussionists in the whole world. That's it. And I got to work with Leonard Bernstein, one of the greatest, Bernstein, one of the greatest conductors, composers in America. Uh, uh, also, um, uh, Aaron Copeland, Seiji Ozawa, the, 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 the Japanese conductor from uh, San Francisco Symphony Orchestra and Boston Symphony Orchestra, and uh, Arthur Fiedler. And, I mean, I, I had worked my way from the bottom to the top. 
and I get into the Jerusalem Symphony Orchestra. The fact that you tried for Tanglewood four times, tell me about the way you handled the, the um, rejections the first three times. I mean, was there ever a doubt that you would ever get to Tanglewood? Oh, yeah. Like, in your mind, it didn't matter. No, I was, I was devastated. I was embarrassed. I was hurt. I, was, I felt like a loser. But I had a very, very competitive edge in me, in that, and I was not going to give up. And uh, it was so frustrating because – and I, I could have prepared better. I think the first time, I, did, I just went for it, and, I mean, I got crushed. And um, – I came back the next year and was more prepared, but I still could have prepared better. But eventually, I I got in because I just got better and better. That's that's the that's an example of how if you you know it's the RPS method. If you repeat a skill over and over again, you will eventually become successful. Yeah, it was very I was very disappointed and embarrassed, but I was uh, driven to succeed. And I, I think some of that comes from your DNA, the way you're born. And some of it comes from your upbringing, or a lot of it comes from your upbringing. You know, it, my entire life, I never, ever, once, ever thought that anybody was going to take care of me. I mean, I knew my parents were there for me, but I never was ever thinking, well, you know, I, I can just get by. Never. I've always thought I was on my own. And that's what I've told my son. I said, you got two things I'm going to give two th- bits of advice I'm going to give you. Always realize you're on your own. Don't depend on anybody, even though, obviously, if my son needs some help, I'm there for him. But I want you to think in terms of you are on your own. Don't depend on the government. Don't depend on people to hand you stuff. You make your career. You make your life. The other bit of advice I tell him is be healthy because you're on your own. If you have that attitude, you won't be waiting and looking for handouts. You're going for it. Look at nobody's born successful. Nobody. Bill Gates wasn't born successful. Uh, Elon Musk wasn't born successful. He was just a baby. He made those guys made their success. Nobody handed them. They didn't hand them that success. They made it happen. The guy who you know Bezos for Amazon. They made their success. Those are examples and role models. Obama. He didn't wasn't born the president. He made decisions that got him there. So for people to think that success just lands in your lap or it's going to be handed to you, it's guys like me that are going to take it right from you because you're waiting for something to happen and I'm always taking action. Well, what I find interesting about your career is there are a number of times when you face failure. Oh, yeah. Where where things didn't go right and the way you reacted to that, as in the case of um, you're auditioning for Tanglewood four times, but also when, when John... Mellencamp first went into the studio and and you were told that you weren't going to be recording the first album with him. At that point, he could have been totally pissed off, walked away. He said, I want to stay and I want to watch what I need to know so that I can do it the next time. Which was like, to me, that was like an amazing point in your life. Yeah, I I, I didn't know what was going on. All I know is I was embarrassed. I felt like a loser. I was ashamed. I was going, don't you realize I work with Leonard Bernstein? That didn't give it. That didn't have anything to do with getting a song on the radio to be a number one hit single. In other words, I might have been experienced at playing classical music, but I wasn't experienced getting songs on the radio to be number one hits. That was a pitiful, pivotal moment in my life. That was a life-changing moment. There was Because based on my purpose, seeing the Beatles at 10, when John Mellencamp, you know, I turned down, tang, I turned down the Jerusalem Symphony Orchestra. I turned it down. I turned certainty down for uncertainty. I turned certainty Sorry, down. Can I, can I ask you why? Because you. Uh, I'm getting but, there. Yeah. Okay. Because I followed my heart and not my head. Thank God, I wasn't having this conversation we're having right now when I was a kid. I just turned it down, and I was like, I felt like, wow, what am I doing? My parents are going to be pissed. Everybody was shocked. I was turning down a paycheck, a gig. All that work I'd done for five years, and now I'm turning it down because I followed my heart because I still wanted to be in a rock band. So I, 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 I made that decision. And when Mellencamp told me to go home, I said no for the same reason. He was trying to take away. I finally was in a rock band. I was finally in a band going to make records, going to be on MTV, going to be on tour. I finally, had, in my mind, 
you know, gotten into the Beatles in a smaller scale. And then he tells me you're not playing on the record. No fucking way. And that's, so I was, I was freaking, but I told him I'm not going home. And he was like pretty, pretty like he, he could, that'd be like a boss telling you you're fired and you go, no, I'm not. And then the boss says, keep showing up. What don't you understand about that? You're fired. And I said, well, I'm not going home. And so I negotiated a deal that on the fly that was, I was trying to negotiate a deal that would benefit the both of us. And basically I said, well, am I still the drummer in your band? And he looked at me and he went, well, yeah, but you're not playing on the record. And I said, well, I'm going to go and I'm fumbling for ideas. I'm going to go in the studio and watch these drummers play my drum parts on your record. And I'll learn from that and I'll benefit from that. And you'll benefit because I'm your drummer. And he didn't say anything. Silence. I'm like, oh, my God. I went, well, okay, I'll work for free. And I'll sleep on the couch. I'm not going home. And he went, okay. So I stayed there. And the big, big takeaway, the huge lesson, and this is what makes a difference in many ways between a successful person and a not a successful person. And this is what I talk about in my speeches. Very, very important concept. It's a shift from me, you're the individual, to we, the team. See, you spend, I spent all those years focusing on me, practice, practice, sound, feel. Everything was about me, 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 which was what I needed to do to be great as an individual. But to be really great, to always work, is you have to be the ultimate team player. You have to know how to be part of an epic team, which is all about not you. It's in other words, if I was to start a business with you or be in a band with you, the approach I need to take is I've got, I want you to like me. I want to like you. I want you to do great. So that, and I want you to like me and I want you to wish I do great. So that together we co-elevate. We co-elevate together. That's why teams teams win Super Bowls. Teams win World Series. Teams win Stanley Cups. Teams, teams win, you know, NBA titles. Not individuals. It's the team. And those great coaches really, really teach these people about that. You take all these super talented people and create a team. And, 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 but you want to be the MVP on your team as a team player for the team. So in other words, if I go in and do a session and I'm playing on a session, say with Mick Jagger, man, it's not good enough that I do a great job. It's not, I need the bass player to do a great job. The keyboard player, guitar player, everybody, everybody, the engineer, everybody do a great job. So that song is phenomenal. It gets on the record, gets on the radio. If my drum part's great, not good enough. And if I'm satisfied with just my part and don't give a shit about everybody else, I'm not a good team player. That's the thing I learned. How much studio work had you done before that opportunity with Mellencamp, that first album? Not not much. Not not nothing at that level, that's for sure. Okay, so when he said, Okay, you can stay and watch and sleep on the couch. What yeah. did you learn from that? Because it's weird to think that, you know, your first opportunity, one of your earlier opportunities to go in the studio and that they tell you you're not good enough to where you are today, which is one of the most thought after drummer. It wasn't that I wasn't good enough. I wasn't experienced enough. Okay. What did you see at that session that thought, oh, I need to do that? Well, besides the technical stuff, there was a whole list of technical stuff. But this teamwork thing was what I learned. I learned I have to serve the song, serve the artist, serve the band, serve the uh, producer, serve everybody. It's all about the team. That's what I learned. And I didn't know how to put it in words like that. But as I step back and look back, that's how I became successful. Because when I walk into a studio, whether it's Elton John or Springsteen or Sting, or the Smashing Pumpkins, or Tony Iommi, or Alice Cooper, or Ava Levine, or Lady Gaga, whoever it is, I go right up to them and I start connecting with them, start communicating with them. So we have some sort of rapport. Now we can collaborate, connect, communicate, collaborate. This is not about me as much as it's about us. 
That's what I learned. That's what I learned. But when do you think it became, you became this entity? Because now, I presume, and for many years, people call you because of who you are and the reputation that you have and the type of music you play, mm -hmm. the type of drummer you are. At what point did you define that? What, what point did that become you? Well, I became me when, as soon as Jack and Diane went to number one, two years later, after I had failed, all I knew is when I went home, I went, whoa, I've got to change my entire business model. In other words, I started, I started at that moment becoming a different drummer. Still me. But I mean, it was like, what does John Mellencamp need? Not what do I want to do? What does he need from a drummer? That's a team. That's about the team. What does he do that I need to do? So I started listening to the Rolling Stones, Creedence Clearwater, uh, Bad Company, ACDC, music where the drummers play simpler, clever, feel, time, even simple uh, John Bonham, like on Cashmere, Phil Rudd on, on Back in Black. Listening to songs where drummers are part of the, the package, the team, doing their part to serve the song. Not about them, it's about we. And so I started to realize that was a very humbling moment. As a matter of fact, I even said this myself and to somebody, because I was reminded this, that I actually said to somebody, you know, I got to learn to love this or I'm not going to be good at it. I have to learn to play simple. I have to learn to serve this music. And if that doesn't make me happy, I won't be great at it. And so there was a pivotal moment two years later. You know, when I went home after that being fired from the record, I said, I, I'm going to make a promise and a, and a commitment. I'm going to be on the next record to redeem myself. And that was two years later, still in the band. And I and go down to Criteria Studios. It was one of the most difficult records I've ever made. John Mellencamp almost died right in front of me on a motorcycle accident at 80 miles an hour where Dog jumped out in front of his Harley in the dark. And we saw sparks flying and the bike going down the pavement and it hit a tree and explode. We thought he was dead, but he had jumped off at the right moment. He'd gone, that was a week before recording. He was going through a divorce and he was about to lose his record deal. He was not a happy guy, which made the sessions very difficult. Because he was expecting so much from us because he needed us to, you know, he he walked into a rehearsal once years later and went, listen, you guys, I write the same songs. I need you guys to come up with creative, innovative parts that get these songs on the radio to be number one hits. And Kenny, if somebody has a better drum beat than what you're playing, you play it. Nobody owns their instruments here. We all own each other's instruments. I need ideas. I need songs to be hits. And he left the room, and I thought he was a jerk, but he was right. He was right. His delivery wasn't great, but he was right. This is about getting hits. This is about how do we get this song on the radio to be a hit. When you do, you win the Super Bowl. Everybody gets a ring. It's not about just me coming up with the drum parts. It's about we coming up with great parts to make songs hits. That was huge lesson that I learned that became me a great session player years later and I walked in the studio and that's where the whole Jack and Diane thing happened I mean I see the co-producer with this metal box and I go what's that Don he says it's a Lin one drum machine and I'm going what drum machines replace drummers and I'm freaking out this is 1981 this was like I grab, so I get into that fight or fight mode like I did when John Mellencamp tried to send me home. I call it adapt or die. Adapt or die. I grab the machine, grab the manual. I program the drum, the, the part of the beginning of Jack and Diane. And I give the machine back and I'm reflecting in the, in, the, in the lounge. Oh my God. I mean, what's going on? Am I, is drummers the horse and buggy and the car just showed up and it's replacing them? I mean, what's going on, you know? And so John eventually calls me into the control room and says, we need, a, we need a drum thing here, a drum part, a drum solo. And I was scared shitless because I figured, man, I got to save this song to save my career. And I think, I, but I was excited because I was on the song Thank God we spent all day getting drum sounds because that entire time I had learned my lesson. I went, what can I play that will make this guy's song 
get be, sound great on the radio. What style of music? Well, how? What do I need to do? And obviously, I was thinking less is more. Simple, simple and powerful. And when I made my entrance, it was like boom, you know, kabam, boom, blam, you know, with the drum, uh, kick drum, bass drum, and snare, you know, boo, 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 God, dude, that's the machine, do God, do, 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 boom, blam, and I stopped and I looked in the control room and they were all going thumbs up. So now I knew I still had my job. Bottom line is, I was like, I started trying different ideas and I hit a a brick wall. I get called into the control room and I've got half the people telling me what to play half the people telling me what not to play and that's where I had that epiphany in my head going like dude you're on your own here buddy you have to figure out how what you're going to do to save your career I started heading out to the drums and I remember going 50 feet man this is it dude this is the world series you're up to bat you either win the world series or you lose it I'm 40 feet away from the drums. I'm going, what are you going to play? 30 feet. I don't know. 20 feet. Dude, 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 this is it. What are you going to play? 10 feet. I don't know. I get to the drum set and I'm looking at the drums. I'm looking at them. and I'm like, holy shit. What are you going to do? And all of a sudden, bam, I decided a light went off my head. And I went, well, maybe I'll just use what I already been doing, but kind of present it differently. That would be like if you had a room full of furniture and you don't like it. You have two choices. Get rid of it, start from scratch, or rearrange what you already have. I rearranged what we what I already had been using. And long and short of it is that became John Mellencamp's biggest number one hit single ever in his career. Basically, I made the corporation millions and millions of dollars, which meant I was now part of Team Johnny Cougar Mellencamp because <laughs> he wasn't going to get rid of me now. And so, you know... And I played with him for 17 years, nine albums. But from that day on, every time he'd come to the studio with a new song on acoustic guitar, after he'd play it once, he'd turn around and look at me and say, what do you got, Aronoff? That was a massive, a lot of pressure. And that's where I came up with a whole method of, of, of thinking. Like a, it was a four-step method where I'd go like, all right, when he's playing a song, he's going to ask me, what do you got? And I, so I said, okay, think of what is the most obvious beat, even if it's stupid. Start from there. Then embellish that beat. You see, you take like some clay and then you start shifting it and moving it. And then you embellish it even more. And finally, the fourth thing is just think out of the box. I mean, let's see, what would uh, Neil Pert do with Rush? Well, obviously, his drumming style doesn't fit into this music, but maybe some of his ideas do. Maybe some weird little thing. So that became a method. And I I made hits after hits after hits for John because I had understood how to be the best John Cougar Mellencamp drummer in the world. I know you recognize for that drum fill in yeah. Jack and Diane, but you've recorded tens of thousands of yeah. great songs. Yeah. Is there others that you think, man, this is so amazing. Why doesn't it get the recognition that that drum fill gets or are there other things that you're way more proud of that you think you know well that well the difference between that song and any other song i've never had a two measure drum solo on a on a top top 40 radio station you know back then you know there's so many charts now you can be number one and sell like you know twenty thousand copies back then when you were number one you were the biggest thing in the world because it was only basically the top 100 singles charts and there was the top 200 album charts. And if you were on number one on any of those, you were on every radio station, every TV station, that was the deal. And then they started breaking them into, you know, mainstream rock, alternative rock, folk rock, you know, black rock, Jew, or you know, white rock, this rock, that rock. I mean, it just kept breaking it up, you know, into different factions. So... There was no other song where I was featured quite like that. It set me up. I mean, I've been on. Oh man, I. I mean, I've been on. I mean, so I've been on a lot of number one hit singles, and um, you know, Meatloaf, "I'll Do Anything to Love," but I won't do that. Right. Bon Jovi, "Blaze of Glory," but you know, Belinda Carl, "Heaven on Earth," but they didn't have big drum breaks like that. True. This literally set me up like, you know, and everybody can air drum to it. It's just like Phil Collins in the air tonight. Those are probably the most 
common drum solos that everyone's waiting for them to come in, you know? Can I ask you, when you were studying classical music seriously and, and really, really devoted and dedicated to classical music, did you at any point seriously consider the symphony? Yeah, no, I did. Absolutely. That's what I was, I was going for it. Yeah. I thought that's what you do when you get out. I mean, I wasn't dreaming about it and I wasn't like asking my teacher, where's the next auditions? But when I got out of college, you know, my, my teacher hooked me up with the Jerusalem Symphony Orchestra. I thought, fine. But I, it wasn't like I was crazy about that, like I was about playing rock and roll. That's the thing that baffled me in my head. It was like, well, if you were so crazy about rock and roll, why didn't you just not go to college and just move to New York City and try to make it? Why didn't I? I don't know why. But I would imagine the discipline that you learned from those six years and also the ability to read music and the ability yeah. to see music in a different light. And I don't know how much work you've done with an orchestra since then, but I presume that having that discipline and having that experience has made you a far better musician. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, that's the only, the only way you can do Kennedy Center honors is if you can read music, like, amazingly. The only reason why I could do the, the, the drummer does the Obama inauguration or the Johnny Cash tribute or the, you know, the, the Merle Haggard tribute or the, the, uh, um, the Greg Allman tribute because I can read music. You got 25 songs. Kennedy Center, you don't even get the songs until a week before. And then you've got, I got to learn the YouTube version, the album version. Then when we get there, they change all that around. You're writing nonstop. At the end of the day, I'm at my, in my hotel room rewriting everything. Tempos, you got Sting coming up to you saying, hey, would you do this? Would you do that? You write it down. I just did Kings of Chaos. That was 20 songs. That's like, you know. Five Cheap Trick songs. There was Night Ranger songs, Damn Yankee songs. There was a D. Snyder's uh, Twisted Sister song, Zeppelin, ACDC, uh, Guns N' Roses. Each one of those songs, there's a precise, exact drum part. I mean, here, I'll show you right here. Nobody else can see this, but this is what like one of my charts looks like. Wow. So, and but I, is the goal to sound like Guns N' Roses? Or is absolutely. it the goal to... More no. so than to make it your own. Absolutely. Sound like Guns N' Roses. Unless the the person who I'm playing with, like if I'm playing with D. Snyder and he wants me to play differently, then he's I do it differently. But until that point, what I do is I go on, like Gilby Clark was with the Guns N' Roses, and he told me a couple of adjustments he wanted me to make. And he said, don't do it like the record in that, that solo. Do it the way we used to do it live. And so I do that. But other than that, tempos, I start with the tempo of the record. I start with the drum parts exactly the way they're on the record until somebody tells me differently. Actually, tell me a little bit about Kings of Chaos because I didn't know much about them until like this weekend. Yeah. Well, Matt, Matt Sorum started it. He was the drummer in Guns N' Roses. Right. And I think that's that, that spinned off from Kings of Chaos. I mean, I can't. I mean, Camp Freddy. Camp Freddy was a a thing they used to do with people like Dave Navarro from Jane's Addictions, Glenn Hughes from Deep Purple, uh, Corey Taylor from Limp Biscuit and Stone Sour, uh, Duff McCraggan and and Slash from Guns N' Roses, uh, just on and on. All these celebrity rock stars, and they would do concerts every so often in L.A and corporate events and they just do get a lineup of killer singers and so matt started his own called kings of chaos and the core band is matt sorm unless i'm there um and the bass players uh well they've had rotating bass players i think duff might have been there at one point but in this particular setup we had uh james lomenzo who plays with me with john fogarty but he played in megadeth he played with david lee roth and he played with um, Black Label Society and White Lion. He was a founding member. And um, and then Gilby Clark, the guitar player from Guns N' Roses. And uh, and then uh, Warren Demartini from Rat. And so then we will uh, hire, or Matt will hire singers. This particular lineup was Dee Snyder from Twisted Sister, uh, Robin Zander from Cheap Trick, and... Um, 
Jack Blades from Night Ranger or Damn Yankees. And then we did rat songs because uh, we had D- Warren D. Martini there. The idea is you play songs with that are related to the people on stage. But we do a couple covers. We did like three covers. Uh, we did Rock and Roll by Zeppelin. And we did um, Whole Lot of Love by Zeppelin and Come Together. But yeah, we do it pretty accurately. And that's the whole thing. So last, well, before the pandemic, I had done... Kings of Chaos also. It was with Sebastian Bach uh, also. It was with um, D. Snyder, and it was with Lou Graham. And it might, might have been his last concert because he's got health issues. But And there might have been somebody else. But it was great, man. I love it because I get to play all these <laughs> classic rock things, but I learn them note for note because I want to get it just the way they they recorded it or the way they're performing it now. So what's it like for you? Because you, you spent 17 years or so working with John Mellencamp's band, and you were a band member. Yeah. It was this group. Yeah. Um, and you have that discipline. And then around that, the ending of that time, you became a very in-demand session musician where yeah. you, people would call you and say, I need you as a drummer for this yeah. track or whatever. What's the difference in your attitude or the way you approach things as a, a drummer for hire and where you got to go in the studio, perform and get it done right quickly versus being in a band formation where I would presume that it's a different attitude, mindset. Well, I I thought it was until this happened. I was in the band and that was it, you know, and of course I did sessions every so often if it didn't get in the way. But one day at the end of eight years of being with John and we were flying around in private jets selling out arenas across America with no opening act. It was just us. Three-hour show with Mellencamp. And all of a sudden, John, at the last show of the Lonesome Jubilee Tour, he said, I'm quitting. Quitting the music business for three years. I'd just gotten divorced. I just uh, had bought a new house, had car payments, child support, all this stuff. And I went, oh, my God. He can quit. And I, I'm out of work because it's really his band. And there was uh, there was no, uh, I mean, there was a retainer, but it was so little. I could make that much in one day, easily recording. And that was a month pay. And I went, I'm never going to be in this place again. So that's why I went out and aggressively went out to become a session drummer. And I spent a year beating the pavement in L.A. And eventually... I became, I broke in and I became a real recognized session drummer and, um, you know, ended up playing on 300 million records sold. I had drums in Nashville, L.A., New York City, Indiana, of course, where I lived, uh, Japan and Germany. And people would fly me all over the world to make records until the budgets crashed, until record sales crashed. But uh, up until that point, it was like people would fly me first class just for one song sometimes. And so when I saw everything change, the budgets, that's where I got my own studio in L.A. And I moved to L.A. and moved everything here so that I, I could be in one place. And that's ever since. I mean, even through the pandemic, I was recording all the time. People were sending me, you know, their music to put drums on. And I'd send it back. So what's the mindset when, when, when somebody says, Kenny, can you do a drum track for this song that I wrote? Like, what go, what happens in your mindset and how does how does that become something that you put on tape well what I, I asked them send me send me the song your demo with the drum part that you have because 95 percent of the time that's what they want so send me your demo with drums send me your demo without drums send me the click track you used when you recorded your demo and i'll import the click track and the music the mp3 uh without the drums or if they send me a Pro Tools file, that basically it's a called a PTS file. You open it up. You just open up the whole file. Everything's ready to go. <laughs> and then I record, I write, make a chart of the song, every note. I rehearse it once or twice. And then now I can give them three takes. Bam, bam, bam. And the, the mindset is to make it sound like we all recorded together in the same room. And so, you know, and I, and I can, you know, I'll do as many as 10 songs a day if I have to. Uh, but everything is charted out. And I'm ready to go. And I just go bam, 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 bam. And people, they can email me on my website, you know, www.kennyaronoff.com. 
and there's a section we fill out a form and they say what do you charge for one song what do you charge for two songs what do you charge for for 10 songs and i have a whole form i just send it back and, and do you ever i mean can it be anybody <laughs> like can i really yeah any yeah anybody okay so you were playing at a level that was like you said number one in the world touring on lear jets and whatever and you saw that side of the business the business has changed quite a bit but that you had experienced with Mellencamp this this level of stardom i guess is the right word but yeah. more than that just yeah that level of celebrity or that level of success is the right yeah. word Absolutely. How do you view the record business? Because, you know, people call you and say, I want you to be on, on my record. And you've experienced all that. Do you, does that yeah. inform any way of how you are today? No, I, I don't mind. I mean, I, I recognize, yeah, I mean, every everything I do, I can't, you know, obviously I'm playing music that, you know, the musicianship isn't what, it, you know, it's not, it's not all at the same level. But I love the process of recording so much, and I'm so good at it, that I, I enjoy taking a song that's okay and making it amazing or much better. I, I enjoy that. I don't mind. Um, you know, if, the, if people are not playing with the click track real well, I just turn their music way down and I ask them. I always ask, what are you keeping? Because if they're keeping and their stuff and they're out of time, I have to go out of time with them. Hmm to sound like we played together. And I prefer that they replace everything so I can be very precise and on the click. You know, I'll, I'll hear mixes sometimes come back and it's like, whoa, they didn't, they were a little bit on top and not in the pocket. It's just the nature of the business. I love recording so much that not everything's going to be, you know, at the high, you know, not you, not everything is like a sold out 20,000 seat arena right. with people screaming for you, you know. It's changed so much. So I'm grateful that I have a studio and that I can do all this recording. And I did my audio book there. The, my book, Sex, Dr Sex, Drums, Rock and Roll, is now an audio version on Amazon. I did that there. I did Access TV there with Sammy Hagar featuring Steve Lukather from Toto. I've done uh, you know Billy Gibbons in there. I've done so many people. That studio is amazing. And I did my virtual corporate speaking from there. I did three events live from there with cameras, lights. I have a whole setup. I spent the whole year turning it into a TV studio and able to. So, yeah, I mean, I adapt or I'm not going to die. I adapt or die. <laughs> and I adapt. I know you're doing public speaking. What made you do that? Because it sounds like you're constantly busy or you were. No, I am. Um, like ridiculously, I am ridiculous. yeah. So, so there's enough people calling you to do session work or asking you to go on tour, and then you say, "Well, I want to do public speaking too." How does that happen? Well, I, when my book came out, Sex Drums Rock and Roll, I was getting offers to speak. Oh, okay. And then I, I met an agent, and he told me I had a meeting with him, and he told me this is what you need to do to be a great speaker. And I came back three, three years later, had invested a lot of money, created a reel. I'd learned how I created a deck and slides and a whole show. I've got two computers. I'm playing music. I've got a movie. I mean, I've got, I've been refining my speech and what my, my subject is about and what, and what he feels is a great marketing, what he can market me as, which is teamwork, leadership, innovation, creativity, communication skills, and uh, staying relevant and realize your bliss and purpose in life. And so I've been doing it, and, I'm, and I have taken courses even. I've had writers work with me. It's a business. It's to be really great. And, I mean, I've been doing it now for six years, and I'm just getting to the point where I'm at another level. That During that whole pandemic, I, I worked hard and, and, and took advantage of that time. And to be speaking and to be able to give a great speech and be like this, talking like this when you don't see anybody but just a camera, I can do that really good. I don't need the audience. And so I enjoy it. Where does that come from? Well, I think that, you know, when I was, well, I'm born that way. I'm a people person. I enjoy people. But I also, I did drum clinics for 30 years. Right. Where I'd have to stand in front of people, do a two-hour drum clinic, talking, teaching, performing. And I got good, you know, at being in front of people.
My mom said I was always good at that, even when I was in seventh grade, you know, I can't remember what she was a school teacher at a school I went to. And she said, you were great always on stage. You just felt you seemed so natural for you. Wow. So, so yeah. I'm curious that you have an identical brother. Yeah, identical twin. Yep. He's a doctor. Um, a psychiatrist. And I, are there a lot of similarities between the two? A lot of similarities. We still, holy shit, I got a, um, well, people won't be able to see this. Have you seen the picture of him? Yes. Yeah, it's amazing. Okay, so, yeah, it's amazing. <laughs> it's basically you double. Yeah. But he, uh, we, we played sports together. We played, uh, we always hung out. We had team, played in bands together. And then we went completely different directions. And we're different in that regard. I'd say I'm a little bit wilder. He's a little bit more conservative, but basically we sound the same. We both are workaholics. We both are super competitive, super passionate. Really, you know, we sound the same. That blows me away. And look the same. Yeah, amazingly same. Um, yeah. Did you ever doubt yourself? Absolutely. Remember, I'll never be as great as I want to be, but I'm willing to spend the rest of my life trying to be as great as I can be. I accepted that when I finally realized it was a humbling moment. But up to that, man, I was like, you know, like any kid, you're like, you don't have enough ex life experience to understand that what I used to call failures and mistakes, I don't use those words anymore. There are no mistakes. There are no failures. Those are just experiences that are helping you become a better you in this life. You may not get it all worked out in this life. That's okay. Just keep trying. There are no mistakes and there are no failures. There are Those are just events. The reason why I don't call them that anymore, when you say failure and mistakes, it, it's, it, it's a crushing blow to your ego and feelings. It triggers the experiences you had when your dad or mom told you that you did something bad, you disappointed them or your teachers, or your coaches, or anybody older than you. You know, we all were children, and so we were small, they were big. And so we would be devastated by failure because you'd see in their face that they that you had really disappointed them. And when you're a child, that's very heavy. Mm -hmm. So you want to pivot out of that mentality and go take a deep breath and go, you know what? Uh, I'm not going to call it that because when you call it that, you feel ill. You feel sick. It triggers those old emotions. If you say, all right, I, I, I'm going to get this. I just I just have to put in more time and I, and I have to be patient. And you know what? You're actually really good at what you're doing, but you just need more time to do it. Now, if you say it like that, you don't feel like a loser. You're, you feel more confident. You know, positive approach on difficult situations it's been proven that in the brain scan looks different than a negative approach to diff difficult situations. And, you know, I've operated in both worlds. You know, as your kid, it's like, oh, man, I suck. Damn. Oh, shit. I suck. And then I get better. But now I realize it's not as healthy. It's not healthy. They've shown, if you can see it in the brain scan, literally it's not healthy when you take the negative approach to difficult situations. Just stay in there. Practice more, work more, keep, be conscious. What can you do? You can do better and it will get better. The method is, it's a great method. I, I mean, I think you're the living proof of that. I mean, just the, the, how you yeah. dealt with adversity and how you never gave up. And I just, when I read your book, that's the thing that came across. Is yeah, that, you know, things exactly. happen to you, but you just said, well, I don't care. I'm moving forward. Yeah. And that's an amazing thing to have. Yeah. I'd say that the, the difference between when, you know, when I tell that story to now is I'm positive about difficult situations or I try to be. I try not to complain. You notice I'll be like handling stuff. But then when I speak to my wife, there's the urge of talking like I used to talk when I was a kid. <laughs> God damn, that's so difficult. Oh, that's so, that sucks. Oh, those, that's all negative stuff. And it takes a lot of work to sit there and go, don't say it because it's natural to complain and let off steam. But the more you can avoid that, the healthier it is for you. And literally health, they've proven it. You can add 10 years to your life or at least quality of life. Right. Like somebody asked me in the interview the other day, they went, 
dude, it's so obvious. It's like, it's almost like uh, you've climbed Mount Everest. What now? And I went, climb it again. <laughs> if you climb it again, you're going to learn something different. You go up a different way. He says, what do you do when you go into, like, you know, peaks and valleys? What do you do when you go in a valley? I said, when I was a kid, I used to, or, and which wasn't that long ago, I was, <laughs> I'd get like, oh, no, oh. Now I go, oh, yeah. Ooh, we're going to go down. Let's see. The last 2,000 times I went into a valley, I came up higher than where I was because the valley is an opportunity to learn to do things better. So now I look at the valleys. It's not fun, maybe, but I know the end game is going to be phenomenal. So it's a, it's, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. You just sit there. I'm like, I'm where I was in my studio till one in the morning. I when I was flying back from King from Kings of Chaos gig, I was already learning a a Ronnie James Dio song that I have to record and film tomorrow. Very specific drum parts, very, and I'm trying to memorize it because I don't memorize great because I read music. So then I came home that night after flying and not a lot of sleep, wrote the chart, and then I started rehearsing it on Saturday. And then yesterday I was there till one o'clock over and over again, trying to memorize, trying to learn, work on. Then I recorded it and then I listened to it. I went, no, that doesn't sound good. Then went back and rehearsed. I'm going to go back to the studio today just for one song because it's being filmed and recorded. It's got to be. Can I ask you what song? Yeah, it's uh, Straight Through the Heart. Oh, okay. You know, and it's a very specific drum parts. It's not like, I mean, I'm adding a few of my own, but I noticed that this, this is a ritual. To those drum parts. Uh, speaking of drums, at one point I got the impression that Billy Cobham was a huge influence on you. Yeah, he was. And you were in a kind of a rock jazz fusion band before you joined yeah. Mellencamp. Yeah. When I look at discography, I don't see a lot of rock fusion unless I'm I'm totally wrong. But I get the feeling. No, 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 no. I, yeah, because I what happens when I got into Mellencamp, I realized whoa. This is what I need to focus on. Then once I became known as a a drummer in that world, I just I owned it. I said, okay, this is what I am. Is there a part of you that still fantasizes the double drum, double bass drum? And oh yeah, yeah, of course. Well, I'll be doing you know, like I'll be doing some double bass drum on this this track, and I you know I recorded with Alice Cooper, Cinderella, Tony Iommi, and and from uh, Sabbath and Glenn Hughes and. So, yeah, I mean, yeah, I mean, I, I still do it. I do it in my drum solos, you know, double bass drum. But, yeah, I, I just incorporate that style into my style, into my, my, what I'm known for when I can. But, uh, yeah. Okay. And then the other yeah. thing, you just, you mentioned that you did an audio version of your book, which is an excellent book, yeah. by the way. Um, oh, what thanks. did you learn from that experience of now going back a number of years later and reading your life story again. It was difficult. It was very, very difficult because you, I had sometimes I, you know, you'd have, you read, you read, your voice changes as you're reading, first of all. And I would spend, I mean, you could spend uh, a whole day, 10 hours and only get 15 pages. Right. Because what we would do is I'd read the chapter and I'd stop every line if something was right. And, and my engineer would say, do it again, do it again. And you'd get through the whole thing. Then I'd listen to it and go, no, you got to punch me in there. You got to punch me in there. I got to fix that. Then I'd leave the room and he'd spend two hours uh, making the, the cadence and the pace between every line have a great flow. And then he'd clean out the, the noise in between every sentence. And then... And then I'd come back in and listen to it, and I'd still make some fixes. Oh, man, it was the longest. But I wonder about not the technical side of reading, but just about your life and, and reliving some of that, what you've written. Oh, it was cool. I liked it. I, I enjoyed it. It was great. Great memories. Yeah, I really understood who I, who I was. Yeah, and what made you decide to write the book initially? Somebody talked me into it. And I, I was saying, I don't have enough time to write a book. Oh, don't worry. It'll be easy. You just dictate stuff to me and I'll put it together. <laughs> I went, oh, that's easy. But then when I saw it, I was going, that don't sound like that. So then I rewrote the whole book. Now this became 
the biggest pain in the ass. I'd be on tour on a day off in a Four Seasons hotel, spend 14 hours working on one little chapter. Wake up the next day and go, nope, not good enough yet. <laughs> Rewrite it. Then eventually I hand it in. And I actually, at one point I had the book. No, at one point I had a checkbook in my left hand, had a phone in my right hand. I'm calling up the, 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 um, the publisher and said, how much does it cost to buy this book back and bury it? Oh. He says, whoa, what's going on? I said, this book sucks. And he said, slow down, partner. He says, we're going to get an editor. The editor will fix all of this. I went, I didn't trust him. And eventually I did get with an editor. I gave him three chapters and he, oh my God, he made it amazing. I didn't know anything about writing books and there was so much stuff he took out. And I'm like, oh my God, you took out the part where I met Dave Grohl and he just started this new band called Foo Fighters. He invited me to the showcase, said, meh. You got enough stories. Well, what about the Cameron Diaz story where she sat on my lap and put her arms around me? No. Did you have sex with her? No. I said, but I should have put that in there because the whole point was, I don't know if she would have had sex with me, but she, this was right at the beginning of her career. But she sat on my lap at the end of the night at two in the morning in a bar. You don't do that to a rock and roll drummer in a bar without the drummer hitting on you. And the point is I didn't. I didn't even try because I was thinking I got to record at 11 in the morning tomorrow with Billy Corrigan from the Smashing Pumpkins and Tony Iommi's from Sabbath. I don't want to blow it. <laughs> so once again, I put work ahead of pleasure. So that should have been in the book because the whole concept of work always came first. <laughs> but anyway, the editor fixed it up and then, wow. And, and reading the book, wow, that was, that was, I'd heard it was difficult. It was difficult. But I learned a lot because it taught me how to speak better. So it, it helped my speaking business. Because you might be able to say, you might go, and I went to the store. Or you go, and I went to the store. Will you really enunciate the last, I sometimes I would throw away the last two words. And you hear stuff back. I'd be going, you know, and I got five gold records. And then you hear the playback. It's like, and I got five gold records. I'm like, what? It sounded way more passionate when I said it. What it sounds like in your head and what comes out on the microphone under Pro Tools, whole different things. So I learned all kinds of techniques of, of uh, presenting my book. And you'll hear me, man. When I get into the parts where I'm really belting it out <laughs> hard, you got to check it out. It's almost like screaming. Well, I, and, I, and everybody should check it out because it's a great book. And, and thank you so much for doing this. It's, I've seen you many, many times with various musicians. Oh, cool. First of all, with Mellencamp. And um, I have seen you play with many different people. And it's a, it's a thrill and an honor to sit here and talk to you. Well, thank you. Where, where are you based out of? I'm actually out of Toronto, Canada. Oh, awesome. Well, oh, yeah. I've spent a lot of time in Canada. Yeah. Yeah. A lot <laughs> well, of time. Yeah, so I just did. I just been working on a record for a triumph, a tribute record. Oh. I'm on two, two or three songs, uh, and and they're out of Toronto, Canada. I yeah, yeah. I just did an interview with Rick Emmett. So yeah, yeah. It's really cool, man. It's great. You know what's great? Just the fact that you're still a huge fan of music. Oh man, I'm massive, dude. I'm, I'm, uh, yeah. I, I'm just, yeah. My, I got. Oh my god! Yeah, I just did it. I just did a new Joe Satriani record that's badass in my studio. I forgot to mention that. That's killer. Wow. That's we did a record that came out and it was a huge success. But then the pandemic hit, so we didn't tour on it. So Joe said, "Let's just do a new record." So I did one, and it's really like wow. It's it's pretty crazy. Joe wants it to be shock and awe. Well, okay. So you're with Supersonic Blues Machine. You you're with Kings of Chaos. Joe Satriani, Kings of Chaos, Joe Satriani, uh, the Bodines, and uh, what did I leave out? John Fogarty. Right. So yeah. these are considered your first go-to band? Yeah. <laughs> but how do you schedule but then, I, but then, But then I, Sammy Hagar, too, occasionally. Right. Uh, how do I schedule it? It's, it gets very <laughs> complicated. And I disappoint people. But, you know, they go like, you know, I won't mention any names, but somebody says, 
yeah, but we need you. I said, well, if you want me there all the time, you should put me on retainer. And then I'll be there all the time. So we don't do that. Exactly. <laughs> you don't do that. So I have to look after myself. Well, you know? and you have been keeping yourself busy. So thank yeah. you so much for doing this, Kenny. It's, um, as I all said, right, a thrill. Thank you. Awesome. Take care, man. Thank you. Thank you.